Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Mitchell Morris discusses Verdi, Verdi's operas and melodrama, and Il Trovatore. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. This kind of theater is about emotional impact more than anything. If logic, if learning, if anything like that have to go to one side, you dump them. Because what matters is for people to go, So what I wanted to do today is I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Trovatore, but I wanted to talk about it in a wider context because I wanted to talk about something really important in Verdi's practice as an opera composer, particularly in his so-called middle period. Um, It has a lot to do with other aspects of 19th century theatrical culture and performance culture, and I want to explore a few of those themes with you today and talk about the role of what we think we know as melodrama, but what is actually a much more complicated story. But I want to start a little further away. I want to start with a film from 1935. The film in question, of course, is A Night at the Opera, starring the Marx Brothers. This was, in fact, the film that was their real breakthrough to mass popularity. Uh, This particular film set the pattern for a lot of their stupendous hijinks later on in their career. I'm not going to regale you with the fine points of the plot, which is a dizzying, crazy mixture of fraud, impersonation, one-liners, and a kind of old-style conman tale. But let suffice it to say that it involves fraud, cultural mayhem, class politics, combining in all sorts of wild ways that we're actually very familiar with because a lot of the tropes, a lot of the sort of metaphors and situations that we see in A Night at the Opera came from earlier theatrical culture and end up showing up in the movies ever after. If you don't think that Mel Brooks is the producers, has a strong relationship for, a, for with A Night at the Opera, well, I got another thing for you that's actually a really important um, antecedent for this. Characters include the dowager Mrs. Claypool, whose money is the target of a con man who's going by the name of Otis B. Driftwood, and his brothers are doing various other comic bits in the orchestra connected with an attempt to found an opera company and do a production of what opera? Il Trovatore. Well, because of the various hijinks that have ensued on the way to this performance, Uh, the boys have decided they are going to sabotage the opera performance because they want to get rid of the bad tenor and substitute his rival, who is our, basically our male ingenue. Uh, So they're sort of doing good works by being mean to stuffy people. Uh, That essential move is fundamental to the Marx Brothers. It's actually fundamental to a lot of cultural um, politics and pop culture 
in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, if you just think about the way that any Warner Brothers cartoon is going to play with high culture, as they would call it, that kind of lampooning is very much along the same lines. Um, the first thing I want to observe is that this is in part connected to an important genre of operatic musicking, we're going to call it. Let's sort of say that we have the opera itself, but then we have all of the apparatus around it, the performers, the audience, the clack, the journalists, uh, the discourse, all that other stuff that sort of makes the opera make sense. We're going to call that by the term musicking which musicologists nowadays use quite a bit to refer to all that stuff that you think is sort of beside the point, but is often the main point. Uh, there's a whole genre of anecdotes and books of anecdotes about famous, deliriously hilarious operatic disasters. Now, they are based on the fact that sometimes operatic disasters do occur. Um, when I was much, much younger, I lived in New York City. And one day, the New York Times had music on its front page. The New York Times never has music on its front page because it doesn't usually have as much money connected to it as people in the art world, etc. Um, Francis Bacon, the painter, and Olivier Messiaen, the composer, died on the same day. Bacon was on the front page of the New York Times. Messiaen was on page three. Why? Because a bacon canvas sells for one hell of a lot more than an orchestral score in Messian's own hand. And that kind of material difference makes it a real, a real significance in the placement of these kinds of things. Well, operatic disasters are a famous set of anecdotes for several reasons. One is opera works so hard to create various kinds of illusions that everybody's always amused when the illusion fails in one way or another. And there's a whole way of thinking about failure as a good thing that makes this particular side of opera verge on the qualities we call camp that would deserve a completely separate conversation. Um, but there also are things that happen. Now to return to my comment about the New York Times, on that day, the, New York, the Metropolitan Opera was on the front page because, well, you see, Ava Martin was in Tosca. And she was in Tosca with a baritone, a Spanish baritone named Juan Ponce, who was very tall and very strongly built. And as a singing teacher that I knew at the time in New York said, well, you know, she goes at everything hammer and tongs. And I, she apparently scared him so much that he sort of tried to push her back. He dislocated her jaw. And so she really fell to the floor and she sang VC Darte with a dislocated jaw. She then went off stage and her husband, who was a doctor, examined her and said, you should actually cancel the rest of the performance. And of course, this is Ava Martin. She said, of course not. The show must go on. They popped it back in and she went out and sang Act 3 too. So there are lots of stories like this. There are lots of situations where, you know, the sets fall apart, where somebody completely misses a beginning. If you have ever heard of the ballet troupe, the ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, which are a bunch of guys on point in drag, um, 
part of their whole gig is to do classical ballet, but to make sure that at least one dancer up on stage is wrong, does not get it, and is trying to fake his way through something. So those kinds of things are really common to things like art, uh, to ballet, to opera, and so on. That's part of what's behind the Trovatore, but there's more. And this is what I want to spend the rest of my time talking about. It would be likely for us to, if we didn't care for this style of opera, to dismiss Trovatore and say, God, it's just so melodramatic. Well, what exactly do we mean? Um, my old teacher, Joe Kerman, who I seem to love to diss in these talks all the time nowadays, but because of his aesthetic, um, absolutely despised Trovatore. Um, his take on Verity was, ah, oh, Verity, you know, he had to do all the sort of trashy stuff at the beginning because that was just the business. And then by the middle period, he can actually have his space and he can start to achieve his dramatic ideals. And then for some unexplained reason, he reverts to the worst of the worst old ways with Il Trovatore. And then he gets it back and it, you know, is a glorious progression to Falstaff. Um, what did Joe mean by that? What do we mean when we say melodrama? What we don't mean is what it technically refers to, which is just spoken dialogue with musical background. That's actually literally what melodrama is. It started as a genre in the 18th century, and it rapidly became an important special effect in opera, where there are plenty of places, you can probably think of one or two if you spend a few minutes on it, where suddenly the, there's the orchestra's playing, but the singers don't sing anymore, they talk. So that's what melodrama strictly meant. The way that we use it refers to a theatrical sensibility that you see in a huge amount of 19th century uh, playwriting, but you also see it in films that really probably go up to the present day. We especially associate melodrama with women's pictures, as they were called in the 50s. Um, if we take a film like All That Heaven Allows, where Jane Wyman is the older woman who is now widowed, and she's got obnoxious children who don't like the idea that she's dating a younger man played by Rock Hudson. Um, and, you know, a near tragedy happens, and there's all sorts of feelings, feelings everywhere, feelings constantly, and types and things like that. This kind of melodrama that we're talking about is a kind of sensibility where you use stock characters and you use stereotypes. You have people, but their names are less important than the kind of person they embody. If we're watching A Night of the Opera, Margaret Dumont is playing, capital letters, a dowager. She is a rich widow, and that is her function, is to be the dowager. Groucho is playing the con man, the shyster, the fraud and so on. You've got lots of stereotypical characters, but you also have them in this kind of opera. I mean, seriously, gypsy, gypsy wenches, uh, young or old, that is like an embarrassing bargain counter version of Victor Hugo, essentially. Um, those kinds of characters 
that are really standardized, that don't have any inner life, that isn't the sort of Snidely Whiplash, Dudley Do-Right, Penelope Pit Stop kind of standard silent film trope. They don't really exist in most of these parts. And they don't exist for a couple of very, very specific reasons. One is that there is a really powerful influence in both the playwriting and the operas of this period from the old style of the Italian comedy that was important, especially in the 16th through the 18th century. We know it usually as the Commedia dell'arte. The way that the Commedia dell'arte worked was it was improvised according to stock characters. So there is Pierrot, who is different from Scaramouche, who is different from Columbina, who is different from the doctor, but they all have particular stereotypes. For instance, in the old Commedia dell'arte, the doctor always spoke in Venetian dialect, always, and he was always a miser, and he was always after a woman much younger than he was, and so on. So these kinds of stock characters litter the stage in melodramas as we think of them. Next, the plot hinges on insane, ridiculous improbabilities. Things where no reasonable person would credit that you are identical twins separated at birth and are now facing a duel with one another, and you don't know which one is really the evil twin. That, that, that doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen. But in these kinds of plays, that kind of stuff happens all the time. All sorts of crazy stuff goes on like that. Um, next, special effects. Now, what I mean by special effects is not just the kind of Meyer beer thing, right? We're not talking about, oh, let's, uh, roller skates have just been invented. Let's do a sort of ice skating scene using roller skates. It's not, oh, let's pump up all of the smoke on stage and let's invent a real Wagnerian dragon. It's none of that kind of special effects. What I really mean is these are the kinds of plays where one actor is going to play two characters and will be constantly doing fast legerdemain co costume changes where there'll be all sorts of wild, unexpected things. You, there will even be a spot where you'll have the, the illusion that both of the characters being played by one person are on stage at the same time. Those kinds of amazing, astonishing sort of spectacles. That's really characteristic of these operas. Um, you can think of many, many examples that come to the, to, to, into the present. Um, if you think of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd is essentially a Victorian melodrama in the form of a Penny Dreadful. Um, you also have a situation, you also have, um, sorry, a sensibility where the situations from moment to moment always trump the plot. It doesn't matter what the plot is. If you can come up with a really amazing thing that everybody will gasp at, that's what you want. This kind of theater is about emotional impact more than anything. If logic, if learning, if anything like that have to go to one side, you dump them. Because what matters is for people to go, oh, Oh my God, did you see that? That's what you want. You want the chills. You want the thrills. You want all of those kinds of moments that, you know, well, Hitchcock aimed for that all the time. Or what's his name? The guy who like 
invented the tingler system to make your seats vibrate so that you'd be extra shocked. Um, next, melodrama almost always involves private matters and domesticity. We're not going to be talking about a lot of politics most of the time. Most of the time, politics will be a foil for she has to choose between two guys. He has to choose between two gals. That's almost the only story around. Next, there is a very high tolerance for, um, I don't really know quite what to say. It's beyond purple. It's really ultraviolet prose. Um, you are willing to tolerate an extreme elevation in style that would in other contexts not work, but you tolerate this kind of excess in music and in display of emotion and in acting style, you do not tolerate it in set design. In set design and in costuming and other aspects of the mise-en-scene, you do everything possible to be as authentic as possible. I want to turn now to talking about three examples of melodrama, three moments that help shape some of what we're talking about when we think of Verdi and his sort of the use of melodrama. Um, I think we'll start with the purest form of melodrama, the old form of melodrama, that of speech over music. La Traviata is very rich in this, in this vein, and it works exceedingly well. I think La Traviata is, it's one of my favorite operas, um, because I think that it plays melodrama in an extremely effective way, and actually addresses real social issues at the same time. Because, um, you know, it's not insignificant that Verdi spent a long period of time openly living with a woman with whom he was not married. And so he was accustomed to what he thought of as sexual hypocrisy. And this is one of his big critiques of it. Um, let's now jump back just before Il Trovatore and talk about one moment in the Rigoletto. It is melodramatic, but it is also really a dramatic irony. So um, I do not love Rigoletto, but I do not love Rigoletto for an idiosyncratic reason. Um, it's more like my attitude towards novels. I have to like somebody, and I really loathe everybody in Rigoletto. My only regret is I feel like Salome at the end of, of Rigoletto. I'm like, there's not enough dead people yet. They all need to die because they're horrible. They're horrible. Gilda is stupid. Rigoletto is mean. The Duke, well, just I don't even know where to begin with the Duke. Um, they're just, they're awful people. And Gilda is the only one who suffers. Of course, what it does is it gives Verdi a chance for an incredibly shocking and powerful moment of misrecognition. And that happens, of course, at the end, where Rigoletto has contracted with Sparafucile to have the Duke murdered. And he gets a body, and he's going to row it out to the middle of the Arno or wherever he's supposed to be, and he's going to dump it. But he has to look because he wants to see his hated enemy, the Duke. And it is at that moment that we get disabused, well, that we see him getting disabused of what we have known for some time. Let's just turn to that one moment in Urigoletto. <laughs> Mano 
that is utterly conventional but that's because post verdi it's all t- it's utterly conventional that trope of misrecognition and sudden discovery that is not uncommon it is absolutely you can see the sort of thing that's going to cause people to go <gasps> if they have never seen this before and it's not really hard to recapture that moment of just sort of horror when you experience it um, that's another kind of melodrama. That's the sort of thing that Verdi was after. Those powerful moments that you will not forget. That will go with you when you leave the theater. And so at last we can turn back to Trovatore and see what we can do to make sense of what of, of this crazy plot with nobles and minstrels and gypsies and stock characters galore, with a burned baby, a secret identity, love rivalry, vengeance, all of those kinds of things. It's a really overheated, blood-boiling sort of vengeance story, basically. And I want to conclude uh, consideration of this with my personal favorite moment of this, which is Atsuchena, I mean, the opera really, it's the best part. You know, if I were going to perform in Il Trovatore, I'd only want to sing Atsuchena because that's a hot role. It's really great. Um, and of course, she has this wonderful moment um, early in, I guess it's Act Two, Stride la Vampa, where she talks about what happened that her mother was burned and she got confused and she accidentally burned her own kid instead of the Duke's son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So just in this brief moment, you already get this sort of incredible drive to vengeance captured in sound. And so let's actually conclude the musical portion of our program with this.
Um, I just want to conclude with one brief comment. Um, if any of you are really, really devoted to Shakespeare and you have ever watched Verdi's Otello, you may have been puzzled, you may have been unhappy, you may have been displeased by the way that uh, Verdi deals with Iago. Iago is nothing like Shakespeare's Iago. Iago in the opera is a blood and thunder, full out balls to the wall villain, in fact. And that's because he is not properly a part of Shakespeare's theater anymore in the opera. He is part of the melodramatic imagination. And so thinking of him as, in a way, the play's cousin is maybe one of the best ways of approaching that particular problem. And so with that, I thank you for your time and thanks. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Thank you.